0: latest episode of Brown's rant and today i'm joined by david rudolph for today's episode david is a defense lawyer and best known for representing michael peterson during his murder trial which was filmed by a documentary team and later became known as the staircase which has become a hugely popular show since its release on netflix so david thanks a lot for coming on the show today and how are you this morning i'm good and thank you for inviting me no problem at all so to kick things off I just like to get an idea about your childhood, and you were born in New York. So I'm just curious to know what was it like growing up there.
1: Well, uh, I was I was born in New York City, uh, but my family moved uh, out to the suburbs on Long Island, uh, about 30 minutes outside of the city, when I was in uh, in third grade, uh, and I grew up uh, pretty much from then on until college uh, on Long Island. It was a uh, it was sort of a an upper middle-class neighborhood. Uh, uh, Back then, uh, it was primarily a Jewish uh, neighborhood. Most of the people I went to school with uh, were Jewish. Um, uh, It was a pretty upscale neighborhood. I wouldn't say it was wealthy, but as I said, upper middle-class. And uh, it was a place where I didn't really want to stay uh, once I once I got out of high school, but uh,
0: as far as growing up, it was it was a perfectly fine place to grow up. Nice and and during the sixties and seventies, what were say some of the seminal events that shaped you as a young man at that time, and obviously influenced your ideas and principles that you have with you today. Y- yeah, well, and and it was a seminal time
1: uh, for a lot of people back then. Um, uh, you know, when I uh, when I was in, I guess, uh, high school, uh, you know, you had the Kennedy assassination. Actually, I was in junior high school uh, for the Kennedy assassination, uh, and and then of course uh, I got to college, uh, and we had Kent State and the the protests against the Vietnam War, uh, and uh, you know, the shootings at Kent State were were. Very traumatic for me because I was a college student, and and there were pictures of other college students literally being gunned down in the streets by national guardsmen. Uh, so that was that was something that stuck with me. And and then uh, when I finally went to law school, uh, of course it was during Watergate, um, and uh, you had the Attorney General of the United States being impeached, uh, being uh, indicted. Uh, You had the chief of staff of the White House uh, being indicted, uh, the White House counsel being indicted, uh, and ultimately uh, articles of impeachment being voted against uh, President Nixon and him resigning. So when you're in law school and all of that is going on, uh, I think it it starts to shape your view of of, uh, what's important uh, in terms of where you're going to pursue your career. And for me, uh, that led me uh, to a healthy dose of, of uh, skept- <coughs> excuse me skepticism about uh, government power and uh, protecting individuals against the power of government, uh, and I think that's that's sort of what led me directly to become a public defender, which was my first job.
0: You spent a bit of time in London University, if I'm not mistaken. And what what were your steps from educating yourself? in law to suddenly becoming, that being your profession, and then taking on some high-profile cases in the years that followed?
1: I was actually at LSE for, uh, for a while. Uh, that was sort of a junior year abroad, uh, and I can't say I took uh, my studies very seriously. I was mostly uh, enjoying London and traveling, uh, so uh, I'm, not a, uh, I'm not a product of, of LSE's great mm. uh, <laughs> educational tradition. But, uh, uh, when I finished college, I went to law school at NYU, uh, which was a very progressive law school at the time. Uh, and as I said, uh, right after law school, my first job was being a public defender, uh, in the South Bronx. Um, and back then, uh, some of you who are old enough to remember might remember Jimmy Carter as the president going to the South Bronx, and there were all these pictures of, uh, of. Uh, burnt-out buildings that sort of looked like Dresden after World War II. Uh, and I worked up there. Uh, uh, I worked in an in a upstairs uh, office. Uh, to get to the office, you had to step over uh, uh, drunks and beer bottles. Uh, my, uh, my office mate was Barry Sheck, uh, who went on to uh, represent O.J. for a time and then uh, formed the Innocence Project. Uh, And he and I have remained friends since that time. Uh, And I did that for a couple of years. And then I became a federal public defender working in federal courts. Uh, I I represented a group. Actually, I represented a woman who was part of a group of Croatian uh, nationalists back in 1976 who hijacked an airplane from uh, Kennedy Airport. And flew it uh, over to Paris, dropping leaflets, uh, uh, advocating for Croatian independence from Yugoslavia at the time. Uh, That was sort of my first uh, taste of a high profile, high pressure case. Uh, And that was in New York, in federal court. I was a public defender. I was literally uh, two and a half years out of law school. I was I was a baby lawyer. and uh, and every every newspaper from around the world was covering that story, so I was sort of thrown into the mix uh, at an early age.
0: You've worked on high-profile cases, as you pointed out just there, but I'd, I'd just like to delve into the Alan Gell case, in which he was convinced of a murder he didn't commit. And you also mentioned on your um, website a more recent case in 2017, where Tim Bridges was wrongfully imprisoned for 25 years for a rape he didn't commit. So I'm just wondering, could you shed some light on these cases and what experiences you had during these particular cases?
1: Yeah, well, um, after the Peterson case was over, um, uh, as I say, uh, during the filming, I was fairly well devastated by the verdict. Um, And uh, uh, my career then began to morph a little bit Uh, And I began to do uh, what we call in the states wrongful conviction cases. In other words, uh, I began to represent people who had been imprisoned for things they hadn't done. Uh, They had then been exonerated in various ways. Uh, And now, uh, going back after they got out of prison, we were looking at why were they wrongly convicted? Uh, And was there anything that happened that was misconduct Uh, that caused the wrongful conviction. Uh, And of course, generally speaking, uh, uh, when there's a wrongful conviction, something has gone horribly wrong. Sometimes it's simply a witness who is mistaken. Uh, But a lot of times it's a police officer who became overzealous, uh, became convinced uh, that his theory of the crime was correct, uh, and then shaped, uh, to put it politely, the evidence uh, to justify his conclusion. And that's what we found in the Alan Gale case. Uh, there, there had been, uh, I think, something like 15 witnesses uh, who had established that the victim had been alive uh, at a time when Alan Gale had been already in jail on another minor charge. Uh, and those witness statements had never been turned over, uh, to the prosecutor uh, and therefore they were never turned over to the defense counsel. So it was a, a pure case of what we call, uh, the suppression of exculpatory evidence. This evidence would have proven that Alan Gale could not have committed the crime. Uh, and, uh, uh, it was, it was withheld. It was hidden. Once we found that uh, we sued those police officers uh, and recovered. I, I think it was about four million dollars for Gail. He had he had actually been on death row for three or four years. Um, luckily, uh, he his conviction was overturned before the death sentence could be imposed, uh, and uh, and we ended up uh, settling that case against uh, the North Carolina SBI, the State Bureau of Investigation, for about four million
0: dollars. Right and with the Tim Bridges case the guy's in wrong Tim Bridges for was a, years a, a,
1: a, yeah tim was another case where something very similar happened um, the detective had decided that tim was uh, was the guy uh, and uh, had sort of uh, focused in on him but there was a, another person who was in custody in another county who had actually admitted committing this crime. Uh the police had that information. They had information that this other person had committed similar crimes uh in the past, had been in uh the Charlotte community which is where this all occurred. Uh uh during the time frame that this woman had been raped. But all of that evidence as well as additional evidence was withheld uh and then uh they brought in uh, a uh, Uh, an expert, a so-called expert in hair, uh, who claimed that a hair found at the scene matched Tim's. Uh, Later on, this hair analysis was completely debunked by the FBI itself as being uh, invalid. You couldn't say that this hair came from somebody else. The most you could say was that it was consistent with the hair of somebody else. Uh, So, those two things combined resulted in Tim being freed after 25 years. Uh, DNA tests uh, excluded him as the source of the semen that was found at the scene. Uh, and we went back and sued the police officers who had suppressed all that information and the hair analyst. And the city of Charlotte ended up settling that case for, I believe it was $9.5 million, which was... Uh, four times more than they had ever paid anyone else. Uh, And the reason was that they didn't want all of that evidence coming out at a trial and and sort of showing how they had done business back in the early 90s.
0: So to, to move on to the much highlighted Michael Peterson case, I'm just very curious to know how you felt when you took on the case first and foremost. But Suddenly, when you were approached by film crew that wanted to film the entire process, because many lawyers, I'm sure, would have had serious reservations about constant filming being conducted inside and outside the courtroom. So, did you initially think it was a terrible idea, or and if you did think that, who convinced you to go ahead with the filming?
1: Uh, well, the answer is yes. I thought it was a terrible idea. <laughs> uh, I was not uh, in favor of it. Uh, and the way it, the way it uh, happened was that uh, uh, Jean uh, and his partner at the time, Denis Pensey, uh had just won uh, an Academy Award for a, uh, uh, a documentary called uh, Murder on a Sunday Morning. And they were looking to do another documentary on the American justice system. Uh, Murder on a Sunday Morning had involved an a indigent person. They were looking for a case that did not involve an indigent person, someone who could afford a, a defense. Uh, and so they were referred to me uh, because I had just finished a, a fairly high profile case, the, the trial of Ray Carruth, who was an American football player who was uh, uh, charged with uh, arranging the uh, murder of his then girlfriend. In uh, any event, that had been covered on Court TV and, and they contacted me and My initial reaction was that I was not at all interested. Uh, But Michael uh, felt strongly uh, that the cards were going to be stacked against him in Durham, that he would not get a fair trial in Durham. And so Michael was very, very interested in having this very well-qualified, well-recognized film crew, documentary maker, uh watching over the trial uh and he felt like um if they were there uh in the courtroom uh and in other places uh that perhaps the the playing mm-hmm. field would be more level uh so he uh, he advocated for that i talked with uh the filmmakers and we had an agreement that uh number 1 their their filming would be at least to the start at, at the start, uh, for my purposes. Uh, second, that they would send their film overnight to Paris, uh, so that if the prosecutor tried to subpoena it, uh, that he would not be able to get it. Uh, and third, that they would not release any sort of uh, documentary until after the case was over. Um, and so with those conditions, uh, and I became convinced that it it was a valid exercise to try to show people how criminal defense lawyers really prepare their cases and operate. You know, there's this sort of uh, 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 illusion uh, in among the the, the media and uh, and the general population that somehow we try to manipulate things and we're unethical and we do whatever it takes to win and I just thought it would be at the end of the day uh, a good uh, lesson for everybody uh, to be able to see how a defense gets put together and presented uh, and so when you put all that together I finally agreed and and they started filming pretty early in the process
0: and, and you were saying it there it gave it gave a good insight into the behaviors of the lawyers and even the defendants team did you when the camera was being shown on you did you ever have to conduct yourself in a different manner or was that was everything we saw on the camera you know real life was it legit or was there times where it yeah, kind of had no, to play to us
1: no we, we never there was never a time when it was sort of like a movie set and i would be talking with michael about something and somebody would yell cut yeah. <laughs> and say hey can you do that again yeah. Uh, I mean that that just didn't happen. They were very very respectful of the fact that they were there, sort of just as a, a fly on the wall, if you will. Uh, they never interrupted me. Uh, they never asked me to to you know change anything or do anything differently than I would do. Uh, now there were certain meetings uh, that they simply weren't at either because of their schedules or my schedule or. Uh, for whatever reason. So it's not it's not a complete record of every everything that I did or every conversation that I had with Michael. But what's in there is absolutely real and, and real
0: time. To move on, and this is a question from one of the listeners, in relation to the murder or accident scene where Michael's wife, Kathleen, was found, many tests seem to be conducted throughout the duration of the documentary. And I'm just curious, and so are some of the listeners, they're curious to know if Michael and his family actually still lived in the house during these tests in early stages, even though there was evidence such as blood, hair, etc., still in the house at that time.
1: Yeah, and I've gotten a lot of questions about that on my Twitter account as well. And and he and, and let me just explain what, what the process was. When, when I got involved, the very first thing I did uh, was to preserve that scene as best I could. Now I didn't get involved until probably a week after. Uh, but as soon as I got involved, we put up a big piece of plywood uh, that covered up that entrance to that stairway at the bottom, and also covered up the entrance to the stairway at the top. So nothing was visible uh, from outside the stairway uh, to anybody uh, when. And the reason I did that was in order to preserve it so that when I hired experts, they could come in and, uh, you know, Ron Jarrett, who was my investigator, could testify that we preserved the scene exactly as we got it. Uh, You know, there's a chain of custody requirement that you have to be strict about so that no one can say you changed anything. Uh, And so we we put that up. Uh, Ron put it up. Uh, He's the only one who ever took it down. And the only time we ever took it down was when one of our experts was actually uh, uh, there inspecting it for purposes of preparing for trial. So it's not as though the family was walking by that, uh, you know, on a daily basis and looking at it. Uh, there was literally a, a large piece of plywood that covered that entire doorway.
0: Okay, well that that answers it pretty comprehensively. And um, so to move on, say into the episodes and deep into it. How important was the bisexual element of Michael's life, um, for the prosecution team? As it seemed to me that they really, they really did focus on that to create an uncertainty nearly amongst the jury. While also, and you've said this before and interviews yourself, it also seemed to distract them away from some of the foundings you and your team had managed to find.
1: Well, and I think that's exactly right. And it was very intentional. Um, uh, you know, uh, when, when the prosecution doesn't have a strong case, uh, the, the idea is to try to prejudice the jury against the defendant, uh, because that makes the jury less likely, uh, to, uh, pay careful attention to the weaknesses in the case. And that's exactly what they did. Uh, so, uh, this bisexuality stuff had literally nothing to do with what happened, uh, on, the evening of December 9th. I mean, uh, Michael had a, had a separate, uh, life, uh, before he met Kathleen. Uh, he was bisexual. Uh, you know, that was sort of an understanding between them that, uh, that's who he was. Uh, uh, and the reality is that the witness they called, uh, Brad Wogaman. uh, had been contacted three months earlier uh, via email. He had never met Michael. He had never had any kind of personal contact with Michael. And Michael had, in fact, told him during a couple of uh, uh, email conversations or phone conversations uh, about Kathleen and how great their relationship was. And, and, And he testified to that at the trial. So, you know, given the fact that that was three months before anything happened, Uh, it had zero to do with the case, but it had a lot to do with assassinating Michael's character. And that's really
0: what the purpose was Mm. on the point of Michael's character and trying to nearly manipulate the ideas the juries would eventually make of his character. Um, you wrote on your website recently that Michael was to quote, was not someone who showed emotion easily in front of strangers, which ultimately led you to get, Josh Carton, who was the trial consultant you knew from prior cases, to help Michael open himself up and to eventually show emotions he was feeling that you felt would be important in the jury's case. So I found this whole entire sequence in the documentary very fascinating, very interesting, and I'm just curious. The question I want to ask is how important is the presentation of the defendant in relation to shaping the jury's idea of the man or woman they see?
1: Well, what you have to keep in mind is that from the moment potential jurors enter the courtroom to go through the selection process until the moment that a verdict is announced, those jurors are watching the defendant virtually every second. They may be listening uh, to the evidence. They may be watching a witness or a judge or a prosecutor or a defense lawyer from when, when they're speaking, but Inevitably, they're going to be glancing over at the defendant uh, every day for long periods of time. Uh, and so it's really, really important uh, that the defendant understand that, uh, that he realized that his every uh, gesture, facial expression, uh, uh, you know, movement is going to be scrutinized by a jury. Uh, and they're going to draw conclusions from that. Uh, you know, consciously or subconsciously. So you simply have to prepare your client uh, if you're going to be a competent defense lawyer for that eventuality. Uh, and, uh, I do that in every case. Uh, it's not just, uh, it's not just in high profile cases. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I go out of my way to, to make sure the jury sees that I really care about my client. You know, I'll put my arm around my client uh when I'm expressing concern so that the jury can see that that this is a real thing for me. Um, you know, I've often uh you know, I'll often bring gum or, or uh lifesavers uh to court with me and uh you know pass some to my client or or pour a glass of water for him. Uh and the and the whole idea is that I want the jury to understand that this is a real person to me. This is not just the defendant. Uh, and that I truly care about this person. I think that's really important uh, for a jury to understand that this is this is not necessarily just a job for me, but it's 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 more than that.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. And on that topic of the relationship a lawyer and the defendant would have, how important is it for you to not get too emotionally invested in a case? And I know it's very it must be very difficult not to with all the work you put in in and outside the courtroom and you get to know the defendant you get to know his, his family his friends but is there a certain line you draw in your own mind where you do not want to get too emotionally invested in it because ultimately at the end of the day you need to deal with the facts and you've got a job to do and that's ultimately to defend the defendant
1: you know you know it's interesting because uh, you'll hear a lot of lawyers say that uh, i've never really believed that Um, I, I think that jurors understand, uh, when somebody is, uh, emotionally invested, uh, in what they're saying and when it's more dry and just, uh, clinical. And I think there's a real difference. Uh, if you're a juror and you're watching me defend somebody, uh, and you can see that I really believe in what I'm saying, it's not just a show, it's not just a job, uh, it's not just a dry presentation, but it's 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 part of me and, and important to me. I think that has more impact, more persuasive impact, than if I'm simply up there uh, without the emotion. So I know that that's counter to what a lot of lawyers believe and say. Uh, but I could never separate myself from my emotions. Um, now, you know, uh, if it's negative emotions, (laughs) you know, if I don't like my client, uh, you know, that, that gets a lot, that gets harder because I don't want to show that obviously. Uh, but, but, uh, you know, where, where I'm really invested and believe, um, I don't, I don't really see a downside other than to my own psyche. If the case doesn't (laughs) go well, uh, to, to. You know,
0: feeling that emotion and it's interesting you you highlighted the fact that you're emotional guy you'd like to get your emotions out there to touch on a scene where, from a viewer's point of view anyway, it was pretty hilarious and also a tense scene at the same time was It was the night before the trial began in which you were trying to get your presentation organized, and you you're getting interrupted by people there's a police officer saying there's smoke in the building. And you're lambasting someone's PowerPoint skills by saying the system sucks. I'm just, I'm curious to know how tense and how nervous do you get yourself the night before a trial or the day before a trial? Is it is it like, say, an athlete before a big sporting occasion? Like, are, are you on edge or at this stage, are you calm, relaxed? Um, when I'm not on edge, it will be time for me
1: to <laughs> retire. Uh. Uh, so the answer is yes, I'm always on edge I'm always, and I think, you know, to get maximum performance, whether you're an athlete or a, or an actor or a lawyer, uh, that edge is, is a, is an important thing, uh, to maximize your own performance. Uh, I will say that I think that the inclusion of that scene, um, will tell you, uh, number one, that there was not any, uh, uh, retakes <laughs>
0: yeah, retakes yeah, exactly.
1: of, of anything. And number two, that they didn't necessarily spare me <laughs> when, uh, when I lost it. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and, and I have to admit that, that, um, I, I, it wasn't at all funny to me at the time. Uh, but when I look back at it now, it, it is sort of like a comedy routine with that, the guy popping in right yeah. in the middle <laughs> to tell me there's a, there's a fire in the building. It's sort of like, are you kidding me? Um, this doesn't happen in real life, but it yeah, did. No, it was
0: fascinating to see. And throughout my time watching the series, I never I never really, and this is a spoiler, so any listeners stop right now, I never really expected to hear a guilty verdict, as there seemed to be plenty of holes in the prosecutor's case, along with, as we already discussed, pointless aspects of Michael's life being brought into the spotlight and used to harm him, essentially. Which, in my view, showed an element of desperation on their part. With all that said, with all the work you put in, how devastating a moment is it when you find out that you've worked your socks off, you're confident, as we saw in the documentary, confident that you're going to hear not guilty, and then it goes against you? How devastating is is it a blow? And as a lawyer yourself, do you find yourself questioning your methods and skills? Um. It was uh, it was
1: probably the worst moment of my professional life, and it wasn't just me who thought there was no way it was going to be a guilty. Uh, you know, everybody who sat in that courtroom on a daily basis—the the, the uh, uh, sheriff's deputies, uh, who obviously you get friendly with over the course of a five month trial, uh, the court clerks. Uh, the reporters, the various media people who were there every day, no one, no one thought that there would be a guilty verdict. To this day, I cannot understand how 12 people looking at that evidence could not have a reasonable doubt. Whether they thought Michael did it or not uh, is sort of besides the point in our system, but how they could not have questions in their mind uh, reasonable questions, uh, is beyond me. Having said that, it was, it was completely devastating and, and, and made me question myself in fundamental ways. You know, what had I missed? How could I have not seen this coming? Uh, you know, what should I have done differently? Um, those are all questions that, that, you know, obviously ran through my mind for, for weeks and months after that, after that verdict. And it was, a, it was a really difficult time for me because, uh, you know, I had always had a fair amount of success in my trials, uh, and, and this one hadn't gone, it hit, the trial had gone beautifully from my perspective. You know, I had accomplished everything I set out to accomplish. Every witness who was important, who testified against Michael, I felt we had destroyed uh, during the cross-examinations. So, you know, when, when you're feeling that way and you're not feeling like, oh, geez, this trial just went awful, I'm, you know, I'd never expected this, and then the verdict goes against you, it
0: really causes you to question, really, whether you were watching the same trial. Yeah. No, it was. It was, as a viewer, it was a shocking moment, and, and the after effect of that is there's a another, it's a big moment in the series when you were on the phone to Michael and it just seems that you are emotionally spent, as you've said there after the trial and you tell Michael that it's unlikely that you can do it all over again. I'm just curious how, how was it like, how was it for you to tell a guy who you've worked so long with that it's, it's, it's out of the question for you to do it again. And then I suppose to follow on from that, what eventually made you change your mind to help Michael, albeit not in a full-on capacity, but to some capacity. You know what ultimately changed your mind to help him again and enable yourself to get invested back in the case.
1: Yeah, well, it was very difficult to to tell Michael I couldn't do the trial, but let me give you some context about that. Um, once we got him the new trial. I I stayed as his lawyer for another four years, Uh, and during that time, we had tried to resolve the case because we all felt uh, on the defense side that this was a case that just should be resolved at this point. He had done eight years. Uh, You know, Deaver had been exposed as a complete liar, Uh, and and there was just no point in going back to another trial, and Michael just wanted it over, and I couldn't blame him. So I tried my very best to to just settle the case. Uh, but, uh, uh, Kathleen's sisters and particularly Candace, uh, who you got a sense of during the, uh, during the, the documentary, um, had an inordinate impact on the district attorney's office. They wanted to settle it, was my, was my take. Uh, but they didn't want, uh, Candace yelling at them the way she yelled at us. Um, and so, uh, at some point it became clear that it probably was going to have to be retried. And I had moved on in my life. Uh, you know, I had moved to Charlotte. I had, uh, gotten divorced and remarried. Um, I -hmm. had a, a baby at the time. Uh, well, at that time she was, by that time she was five. Uh, and, uh, uh, I wasn't. I wasn't emotionally prepared uh, to go back in time and relive that again. Um, and so I just felt like I had to tell Michael that. But I also found him a great lawyer in Mike Klinkasom. Uh And you know, I told Mike uh, Klinkesom, whatever you need, I will be there for you. You know, I will meet with you, go over the evidence. I just can't. I can't be the person who's in the courtroom for another three, yeah. four, five months in this case. And that's, well, that's how fair. I felt. Um, now, unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, Mike Klinkasom has a massive stroke. Um, like two weeks before he's supposed to have this hearing on a motion to dismiss because the prosecution had, had tainted the, the physical evidence.
0: And when the news broke about the lawyer suffering a stroke, did you contact Michael straight away? Because I'm sure once that happened, Michael was thinking, "Here we go again."
1: I immediately called Michael uh, when I heard that, and I said, "Michael, do you want me to? Do you want me to come and do the hearing?" And and he said, "No, no, 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 no. Uh, Mary Jude Darrow can handle it. Uh, you know, we think that Judge Hudson is is you know looking to for a way to get rid of this case." And no, no, I you know, and so I didn't. Um, well then, uh, in November, uh, when that hearing took place, I actually attended the hearing because I just wanted to be there. Uh, mm. uh, if in fact the case got dismissed, um, and I watched, um, and, uh, you know, different lawyers have different styles and I don't know Mary Jude Darrow. Um, but I'll just say that, that I personally was not, um, was not happy with how that hearing went. Um, and I, I left the court that day feeling very badly about what had happened and about the fact that now they were going to be going to trial. And Michael had her as, as the only lawyer. I mean, that was it. And, and Michael then called me the next morning, literally the next morning. And he basically said, David, I, you know, I have to go to trial here and, and, um, I, I can't do that with, with her you know, it's, it's going to be, it's not going to be good. Um, and so um, I agreed at that point that I would at least get involved in an effort to try to resolve the case. Uh, and so when I got back involved, I hadn't made a full on commitment at that point to actually do the trial again. The commitment I made to Michael was that I would come in I would file some, emotion, some motions which I thought had needed to be filed, which hadn't been filed. And then once we filed those motions, I would again try to resolve the case. Uh, and then if that didn't work, we would, we
0: would see where we were at that point. So to fast forward to current day and with the documentary coming out and with many articles and even YouTube videos being made about it, one of the big things and the big topics right now is the owl theory because it's sort of blown up recently and seems to be a lot of social media and a lot of sites seem to be split down the middle as some people think it's potentially a legitimate theory while other people think it's nonsense potentially i'm just curious to know what is your take on the owl theory because i know you learned about it you know several years ago and it was probably too late in the case to you know really investigate it but if that had come to you at a earlier stage, do you think that could have changed the whole dynamic of the case?
1: Well, it's hard to say, uh, you know, because it was a different time and you didn't have, you know, YouTube videos of, of people being attacked by owls and uh, all of the evidence that would now support that kind of theory, uh, you know, through social media and, and other things. So I don't know how it would have gone in, in 2003. What I will say is that I completely think that that's a plausible theory. Uh, indeed, I think it is by far the most likely theory of what happened. Uh, it explains virtually all of the physical evidence. Uh, you know, there were drops of blood outside the house, which we just assumed uh, was from Michael running out of the house to see where the EMS hmm. uh, ambulance was. We never thought that she had started bleeding outside, um, but there were drops of blood right on the walkway outside. Uh, there was a there was uh, a twig of some sort uh, in dried blood, which we knew about, but at the time, uh, it I figured it must be yeah. from the the Christmas tree, you know, or something like that. It never occurred to me that it could have been from a tree outside the house. Um, You know, then there was this little piece of something that no one could quite tell what it was. It turns out that that was a feather. Uh, When you start considering all that and you consider the, the wounds on her scalp, which never made any sense to me as a, as a, you know, being from blows struck by a, a blow poke or anything else, but the way My experts, uh, recounted it. It was, they were splits as, in essence, uh, which came from landing on a flat surface. And, and that seemed, you know, reasonably logical to me. But now, in hindsight, when you look at those, at those wounds, it is so clear that they are from Mm -hmm. a, a talon, if you will, you know, a three pronged talon on each side of her head. I mean, they're, you know, you just look at it. There's one on each side.
0: And personally, yourself, what do you think happened that night? Was it a murder? Was it was it an accident? Was it an owl? What what took place the night of Kathleen's death?
1: I think what happened was that uh, she that Al attacked her outside. You know, she was out there uh, rearranging the little reindeer that they had in the front. Uh, and I think an owl attacked her out there. I think she started bleeding. She ran inside. Uh, you know, the blood started pouring out. She was disoriented. Uh, I think she probably tried to run upstairs to get towels to put on her head. Uh, and I think she lost consciousness. Uh, I think she was out for some period of time, and, and the evidence supports that. Um, and then she stood up uh, and fell back again and i think some of the uh some of the wounds towards the bottom of her of her head uh, are from falls in the staircase uh and she died of a loss of blood she didn't die from trauma to the brain uh and and you know in something like 250 cases in the previous 10 years there had never been never in the history of north carolina uh, a case where someone was beaten to death with some object and there wasn't either, uh, you know, a brain injury or a skull fracture. So you put all that together, Richie, and um, uh, I i don't see how that's not the most plausible theory. And I certainly would have
0: used that theory at a retrial had it come to that. Yeah. No, it, it is, It's it is. It is a truly really fascinating thing to to investigate or even think of right now.
1: Well, and, and you know, all you, all you need to do is, is Google, uh, owls attacking people on YouTube. And I, there must be, you know, 50 or a hundred videos of that happening.
0: Yeah. So no, why would that be a,
1: a plausible explanation?
0: Uh, um, the last question I'd like to ask you is it's, it's just about yourself and, what does, the, what does the future hold for you? Would you still like to work intensely for another several years? Would you like to take the backseat eventually? Or would you ever even consider writing your own book about your experiences in the, in the field of law?
1: Well, you know, every trial lawyer has considered writing his own book about his own experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, that's part, as part of the ego of, of being a <laughs> trial lawyer, I suppose. Um, so sure. I've thought about that from time to time. I just never ever could imagine finding the time to actually sit down and do that. Um, I mean, I've, I've had some incredible cases over the last 30 years, uh, you know, really, really interesting stuff. Um, but you know, who has the time, um, in terms of my, my more immediate plans, you know, I've got, uh, three or four wrongful conviction cases, uh, that are going on right now, which I fully intend to finish out. Uh, uh, I've just been approached about maybe doing a, a murder case, um, on a retrial, uh, which I'll, I'll think about, uh, you know, do, do I ever talk about slowing down? Sure. I talk about it with my wife and my eight year old daughter all the time. Uh, and, uh, the general consensus is that uh, it probably won't happen.
0: And just to Finish. I normally with the podcast I do a quick fire question round, and if you'd like, I'd ask you a sure. few questions. And if you could, say, if you could say the first thing you can think of, and I know as a lawyer you might have to think about what you say, <laughs> but rest assured, if it is in any way uh, incriminating, it can be to me But we'll get going. And what is the strangest thing you've ever seen in a courtroom? A juror literally passing out
1: from looking at a pornographic uh, video no no. you're passing out from being told what was in a pornographic (laughs) video that they were about to be shown
0: oh wow that is most definitely strange um what is the worst advice you see or hear being given in your world and in your case the law world um just cooperate, everything will be okay. <laughs> um, which person do you admire most and why? In the world? In history? Yeah, yeah in
1: history. Um, Nelson Mandela. And why? Uh, because, uh, well, he and Desmond Tutu, because the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that they set up and, and – Utilized, I think, is one of the most amazing uh, devices for healing uh, a country that has ever been thought of, and for him to endure what he endured for all those years in that prison, and then come out and have the the grace and the generosity and the wisdom to know that that's what he needed to do for his country is just mind-boggling to me and, and i think we may need a truth and reconciliation commission in the united states in 2020
0: and last but not least and this is this is by far the toughest describe yourself in three words <laughs> uh,
1: passionate uh, committed
0: and uh unafraid well that that concludes the podcast david so First and foremost, I want to thank you for coming on. I've really enjoyed getting to know the insides of your career and the many insights into the Michael Peterson case, and I'm sure the listeners will love hearing about it too. So thanks a lot for that, and listen, I wish you the best, both inside and outside the courtroom in the future, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day.
1: Thank you very much. Will I be able to listen to this at some point, or is it, it, it how, how do I
0: listen to it in the United States? I can link it to you um, via email and also on Twitter. That'd be great. Okay. Well, uh, thanks a so million for your time, David. Take care, Rich. You have a good day.